We should be able to drive our trucks through, get sand, go protect our homes. Flood response fail. Why Merritt residents are so mad at their local leaders. Traffic backlash. We honestly thought it was a joke. Residents worry it's about to get a lot worse with their neighborhood turning into a detour. And be good or be gone. We'd like to see an increase in fighting fines to $1,000 collectible upon your renewal of your driver's license. Barwatch extends its reach, hoping to eliminate sidewalk scraps like this. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll get to those stories in just a moment, but first some breaking news near Lions Bay. A forest fire has broken out. It's burning above the sea to sky at this hour. The fire department has the upper hand, saying it is now under control. It broke out near hiking trails, and a group of eight hikers had been stuck above the fire line. But crews now say six are accounted for, and the remaining two will be hiked a little further up the trail and then choppered out. No word yet on the exact cause, but crews believe it may have been a campfire. All right, now from fires to floods, new video tonight giving a bird's eye view of the desperate situation in Grand Forks. Right now, almost 2,000 homes are under evacuation order in the southern interior, and another 3,100 are on evacuation alert. And the worst could be yet to come. A stressful time, of course, for those residents who will remain out of their homes tonight as southern B.C. braces for another wave of flooding later this week. In Grand Forks, where cleanup might be futile, sandbag barriers are also being reinforced. Our Paul Hasem is live in that community for us tonight. Paul, the outlook there is not good. Yeah, not good indeed. Thanks so much, Sophie. Bag and brace, that's the name of the game around Grand Forks right now as they get ready for round two. I'm just going to pan over here. As you can see, this is normally an RV campground. Typically in the middle of May, they'd be expecting a flood of tourists. Well, right now they just have a flood. An aerial view paints the picture of what Grand Forks is dealing with right now. So much of the city submerged. Homes, properties, entire neighborhoods still underwater. We're seeing anything from homes that have had water uh, four plus feet up the main floor. I saw one home that is literally tilted, that is not habitable ever again. The rivers once again rising in the Kootenai Boundary region. Thousands still out of their homes. Just right over that direction. People like Larry Salmi, who doesn't know when he'll get to go back. Helpless just helpless. There's nothing we can do. Just wait. And, and that, that's the problem. I feel so helpless. Help is here in the form of the Red Cross, but this will be no easy fix. It's all hands on deck with the next big wave expected next week. I don't know if you can hold back a river, and there's two of them in this town, so... We're as prepared as we can be. It would be nice maybe to have a little bit more uh, support if we had the military in here, helicopters helping to shore up our dikes. I really feel that we're going to have a, a pulse that is le at least what we saw last week. The high level snow melt was on. That combination with some rain is, is absolutely the worst case for us right now. And that's what's coming. That's what's coming. This shed barely survived round one. People not sure what round two will bring. 
it's kind of a bit surreal, right, as you're going through it and you just do your best. And I guess you, you remember what's most important, too. What's most important? The most important things are our family and community. And Grand Forks um, is a pretty cool community. Look at all that they're doing right now. A community doing all it can to make sure they're not left high and not so dry. Now, with all that in mind, it's easy to lose track of days. Well, it is Monday. It's a school day. And I'm told a lot of the high school students actually took their lunch hour to go help out and sandbag. Certainly a lesson they'll hang on to for life. So everyone helping out where they can. All right, Paul, thanks for that. The entire Similkameen Valley from Princeton to the border also on evacuation alert tonight. The river expected to hit historic levels by Friday. John Waugh has a look at the communities impacted and the potential problems if flooding ramps up again. In a Soyuz, front lawns now belong to the fish. And the damage to basements, just the beginning of the bad news. I've got in this house here, because I'm sitting pretty high, I've got about five inches of water right now in a crawl space that's three and a half feet high. There's potential the flooding could deliver a second punch. Hundreds of residents living in the Headley and Similkameen River area are being told to prepare for evacuation orders. There isn't enough room for all of the water from Asuyas Lake and the water from the Similkameen to flow easily down the Okanagan River. Later in the week, temperatures are expected to rise, melting the higher elevation snowpack. We understand it might crest on Friday. Um, we're just not quite sure yet. In Karameas, where hundreds have been told to be ready to leave in a moment's notice, having been spared so far, perhaps building a false sense of security. But I can't see even with the snowfall up there, this doing any damage to Karameas. Further northwest in Princeton, a dike that's been raised three times in the past is holding up so far. Still, the unprecedented nature of what could come has local authorities preparing for the worst. And they've been safe to this point. But we've not ever, that I'm aware of, been faced with, uh, you know, water levels this high with the runoff. Back in Soyuz, volunteers were coming out in droves in preparation for the second wave of flooding, having already experienced what felt like Mother Nature's worst. John Hua, Global News. Well, weather, of course, a big factor in all of this. The heat so far, and meteorologist Christy Gordon has a look at what's in store for the days ahead. Christy? Well, Chris, this is how hot it got today, 10 degrees above average. And most of these numbers a degree or so away from breaking a record. And tomorrow will be even hotter, especially in the interior. Likely see a number of records broken. Now, the Okanagan Valley could hit about 32 degrees, possibly more in some other areas. But the big concern is later in the week, Thursday and Friday, when rain is in the forecast, temperatures will drop, but they'll still remain a good three to four degrees above seasonal. That's that worst-case scenario that yeah. we're talking about. All right, thanks very much, Christy. And disaster financial assistance is now available for flood-affected communities. You can find out more information on our website. And a little later, merit flood victims describe how bureaucratic bungling has put their homes at risk. Now, getting around a key thoroughfare in Vancouver is becoming more difficult. Lane closures on First Avenue have begun, and the delays now are just a taste of what's to come. Tanya Beja joins us live with details on the full closure coming up this summer and the impact not only on drivers, but on those living in the area. Tanya? 
Well, Sophie, at this time of day, traffic on East First is non-stop and people living in the blocks nearby are worried the cars will soon come their way. During rush hour, East 2nd Avenue becomes a detour for drivers dodging traffic along East 1st. It's just the volume of people coming through there, like there's a steady stream of people. They're frustrated, and that is frustrating, but they're starting to drive quickly. It's constant. It's pretty much when 3 o'clock hits. Residents fear the problem will get worse come summer. East 1st will close from Nanaimo to Clark Drive in July and August with partial closures for the month of June. We honestly thought it was a joke. We didn't think that you could actually shut down a street, a main corridor, for that long. Fortis is replacing a natural gas line in Vancouver, Burnaby and Coquitlam. Work begins next week. It's a 20-kilometer upgrade that we're doing going through Vancouver, Burnaby and Coquitlam. And it's really necessary just to make sure that our customers can keep having the gas that they count on in their homes now and well into the future. The road connecting downtown to Highway 1 sees 30,000 drivers daily. The question is where they will go once East 1st closes. We fear there will be a massive influx of traffic onto our streets and, you know, it, it will be difficult, difficult for kids. And this will be during the summer vacation, of course. The city says it will monitor concerns and work with residents when problems arise. Police will be on scene redirecting and enforcing traffic changes. Another thing that we're planning on doing is closing small side streets about one block north and south of East First Ave while we're in the area doing construction work. And that will help reduce um, the number of people who are going to be cutting through local neighbourhoods. Residents say they want more action like roadblocks, speed readers and traffic calming measures and will meet to come up with solutions of their own. We're going to do our best to take back our streets any way we can and just make sure they're safe and comfortable places for the community here. All right, Tanya, obviously a lot of people worried about this. Uh, if they have questions, if they want to do something, what are the options for them? Well, Sophie, Fortis is actually hosting a community meeting tomorrow night. That's at Drive Coffee Bar on Commercial from 5 to 7. So anybody who has concerns can go there and talk to Fortis reps about it. They've also set up a phone number. You can see that on our screen, and they're encouraging anybody with questions to call. Sophie and Chris, back to you. Tanya Beja in East Van Forest. Tanya, thank you. And an important reminder for drivers to slow down and use your road sense around work crews. Because if you don't, Vancouver police are advising they will be out in force this summer. Offenders could face a steep fine, $368 and four demerit points. Between 2008 and 2017, 12 roadside workers died and 20, uh, 218 others were injured as a result of being hit by a motor vehicle. Code of conduct changes are coming for patrons of the Granville Strip. Now, if you choose to party, it's not only your behavior inside a club that matters. Aaron MacArthur explains why you really should behave outside the bar, too, and critics say even more should be done. On any given weekend night, the Granville Strip can feel a little bit sketchy. A lot of drunk people in what can be a fairly confined space. Now, Bar Watch, the people that control safety on the inside of the clubs, wants to extend its reach out onto the street. Booze, drugs, and young people. It can be a deadly combination, and the results are easy to see. Bar Watch has tried to monitor the crowds inside, 
But once last call rolls around, the issues spill out to the street. A new code of conduct has been brought on that will see bars try to extend their reach. So if you become a problem on the street after you've left a bar, watch bar, we will obtain that information and introduce that into our Serval ProScan system. And that information used to ban people from the clubs. The catalyst for this new code of conduct comes from the death of Chris Thind, who was killed outside the Cabana nightclub trying to break up a fight in January. His family still trying to come to terms with his death. Yesterday was Mother's Day, and we couldn't celebrate without without my brother. His sister says the code of conduct is positive change, but more needs to be done. There are CCTV cameras. It would bring justice to this crime a lot quicker, and that's what we need. Barwatch will have to go to the courts to collate names from public charges to the list of names of patrons. But it claims bad behavior, no matter where it happens, will result in real consequences. The VPD says it won't provide that information. Like everything else, we are bound by privacy rules, so we can't just hand out information based on names of of, uh, potential persons of interest or suspects. Banning people from the clubs? One step in a safety plan that needs to involve the city, the police, bars, even people who frequent the strip. Barwatch has had a new code of conduct in place since November. These new rules will be in place in time for the busy summer season. Back to you. All right, thanks, Aaron. The weather has just begun to warm up, and yet we have another report of a child falling out a window. RCMP confirm a 22-month-old is in serious condition after falling from the third-floor window of a townhome in Richmond this afternoon. It happened in the 12,000 block of Phoenix Drive. RCMP are still investigating, but say everyone is cooperating. Well, despite all the talk and investment in technology, B.C. has lost substantial ground when it comes to innovation. That's according to a new report card from the Conference Board of Canada. Tetranecki explains what the key problems are and what critics say needs to be done before it's too late. The displays are going up at the Trade and Convention Centre for the third annual B.C. Tech Summit. The largest technology show in Western Canada is bigger than ever. But on the eve of the summit, the Conference Board of Canada has dropped a very large fly in the ointment. We're simply not getting the results from the innovation that we should and from the investment that we should. It'll be all raw, raw here during the next couple of days, but according to the conference board's annual report called How Canada Performs When It Comes to Innovation, the country as a whole gets a C grade and is now 12th out of 16 countries where it was 9th last year. And provincially, Ontario still scores a B, Quebec a C, and BC plummets from a B last year to a D this year. It's nothing really surprising. And uh, one of the reasons would be the high cost of living. To find out how it's done, one need look no further than across the 49th parallel. The Americans are particularly good at innovating and then turning that innovation into a business. What we've seen is that you know, they've taken the risks, they've invested the money. Uh, I would say they've worked in maybe some more coordinated ways between government and business. When it comes to investing in research and development, Canadian businesses rank dead last among the 16 countries surveyed. B.C. wants to fix that and everything else. 
I have uh, appointed an innovation commissioner that's a senior uh, public official who does nothing but think about innovation all the time and liaises with the, the tech sector. Over the next 48 hours, the discussion here at the BC Tech Summit will have to involve better ways to make BC businesses out of all these great ideas. It's not government's problem, it's not businesses' problem, it's not academia's issue, it's everyone's. Ted Chernucky, Global News. An historic move by the Trump administration to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. And the backlash a lot of people predicted later on the news hour. And a tabloid photo scandal keeps Meghan Markle's dad away from her royal wedding while a pair of friends from B.C. plan the trip of a lifetime to make sure they're at the party. That's later. Right now, though, TransLink is exploring a novel way to improve priority seating on public transportation, taking the guesswork out of who needs it. People with special needs or physical ailments that aren't always obvious would get a special button to wear, encouraging others to do the right thing. Grace Key reports. Maneuvering around a busy SkyTrain station with a stroller and six-month-old baby can be a challenge for Chanel and Kieran. And once they're on the train, the next step is finding a seat. When I was pregnant, there was a couple times where, a couple times, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where people weren't giving it up, but that's it wasn't a big deal. But for the yeah. most part, yeah, definitely. Yeah. People do, yeah. The Toronto Transit Commission has just started a please offer me a seat button campaign. The idea is to make it easier for passengers to request a seat, especially for those whose needs may not be so visible. It's based on similar programs in New York and London. You don't want to explain your story to a packed bus or tube. So having a badge like this where you didn't have to explain that you were suffering inside, but I looked absolutely fine, would have been invaluable. In Toronto, passengers aren't required to prove a need for the buttons, and they don't have to wear a button to occupy priority seats. It's a program TransLink will be keeping an eye on. This button campaign sounds like a really interesting idea. We're a leader in accessibility in North America. We want to. We always want to be trying new things and looking at new things. So we're definitely going to watch and monitor what's happening there. Passengers say people are generally pretty good about offering up a seat, but many are distracted with their electronic devices. Sometimes it's like a bet, like they'll be like... Oh, okay, yeah. I think it's really sad because there's a lot of people that obviously you can't really tell that they have disabilities. You can't assume anything. Sometimes I notice people are kind of looking the other way and not getting up for the people that need it. Wearing the button will be the first step. Time will tell if it actually moves people to give up their seat. Grace Key, Global News. Well, the already crowded field of hopefuls to be the next mayor of Vancouver has another notable candidate. Today I stand before you as a unifier, a bridge builder, to offer a new and better path forward. Squamish Nation Hereditary Chief Ian Campbell announcing he's going after the nomination to lead Vision Vancouver and replace outgoing Mayor Gregor Robertson, who is not running for re-election. Campbell would be Vancouver's first Indigenous mayor and says he will make the environment and housing affordability two of his priorities. And special prosecutors have approved criminal contempt charges against another mayoral hopeful, NDP MP Kennedy Stewart and Green Party leader Elizabeth May. The two were arrested in March along with other protesters at the Trans Mountain Pipeline worksite on Burnaby Mountain for allegedly violating a B.C. Supreme Court injunction. Stewart has pleaded guilty and will be fined $500. May will be in court later this month. Returning now to the flood situation in our province, and there are growing frustrations in Merritt tonight. Some residents say they were hit hard because they were given the wrong advice. 
And now they can't get the help they desperately need. In fact, many say they aren't even allowed to help themselves. Jeff Hastings explains. Merritt residents are their own last line of defense. Uh, well, so far we're winning. Um, not really much damage to the house, but both my shops are under about a foot of water. As it stands, the cavalry isn't coming to man the pumps or to fill and deploy thousands of sandbags. We've been working from daylight till dark for the last five days, nonstop. It's, it just, they keep saying it's, it's peaked and it just keeps coming up more. It's like trying to sandbag a tsunami. The Nicola River is rapidly rising, though it hasn't overtopped the dam at the end of Nicola Lake yet. As evacuation orders are in effect, a few provincial firefighters have been hired to help. And we're helping by making sand and sandbags available, providing media releases, letting you know to the best of our knowledge what's, what's coming. On the other side of town, a belief that the city is standing in the way of those trying to help themselves. Trying to save their homes, these residents say they risk arrest by driving sandbags into an evac zone, but walking them across is okay. So we have to get sandbags on this side, transfer them into the truck on this side, take them into our property. Um, we never had any help. There are claims the city is acting too late. He could have had some pumps there before, but nobody was told the water was going to be coming up to this height. We just simply don't have the resources to protect private property, and private uh, property owners are encouraged and expected to defend their residents. It's already bad, and with temperatures well above normal in much of the interior, there are fears this is only a hint of the disaster to come. Frustration and short tempers are the last things they need. There's a lot of angry residents right now, and uh, I feel bad for them, and I wish them the best, and I know we're all going to get through this as a community. Jeff Hastings, Global News. Well, of course, this all raises the question. Could Mother Nature wreak havoc with the province's budget as we approach fire season as well? Keith Baldry joins us with more on that. Keith. Yeah, Chris, you know, uh, the, the cost of fighting uh, or dealing with natural disasters has become enormous from the provincial government's perspective, but a budget's relatively few dollars to deal with them in its annual budget. Here's some examples. Uh, the forest fire, uh, first of all, Carol James starts with a very small $219 million projected surplus. The forest fire budget, $64 million. That compares to more uh, $648 million spent last year. That's a huge difference between what was budgeted this year and what was spent last year. It doesn't stop there. If you look at disaster disaster relief, uh, the, the gap is, is similar. Just $15 million budgeted for that area this year. Last year, uh, in ex almost $350 million was actually spent. Again, a huge gap of about $333 million. You put those figures together and you can see how easily that, that surplus is threatened. But I talked to Carol James, the finance minister today. She points out right now she cares about mostly about uh, helping the people out there rather than dealing with the balanced budget. But she does point out she's got a big contingency fund of more than about uh, $500 million. So if, if things really go south, she's in trouble, but she's got a big cushion there that she might be able to deal with. Okay, so dumb question. If the costs are proving to be so much higher year to year, why not simply budget more? Yeah, not a dumb question. It comes up from time to time because these numbers fighting fires become so big every year. But Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, tells me today it's based on a 10-year rolling average. But as you see these fire costs and flood costs go up every year, the budget figure in the budget is going to go up every year because that 10-year rolling average becomes a bigger number from year to year as the disasters get bigger and bigger. Chris? So it does. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. Traffic is easing off in both directions now at the Alex Fraser Bridge after a really crazy afternoon commute. Just seeing minor slow down southbound from Cliveden. In the market for an efficient and versatile SUV, the all-new 2018 Chevrolet Equinox starts at just $24,995. Visit ChevroletOffers.ca.
I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. A jarring contrast in the Mideast as Israeli forces kill dozens of Palestinian protesters. While not far away, Israel and the U.S. hold a celebration, opening the new American embassy in Jerusalem. It has been the deadliest day of cross-border violence in four years. Some say Donald Trump's Mideast peace plan has no chance as long as he's in power. NBC's Richard Engel reports. Outrage boiled over in the Gaza Strip today. While just 60 miles north, that seemed like a world away, ovations for President Trump in Jerusalem. Daughter Ivanka helping do the honors, unveiling the new embassy seal. We welcome you officially and for the first time to the embassy of the United States here in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Also there, her husband and Middle East advisor, Jared Kushner. We've shown that the United States of America will do what's right, and so we have. President Trump appeared in a recorded message saying the embassy move from Tel Aviv keeps a campaign promise. The United States under President Harry Truman became the first nation to recognize the state of Israel. Today we officially open the United States Embassy in Jerusalem. Congratulations. Jerusalem is a divided city. Palestinian Arabs in the east, Jewish Israelis in the west. Today, the U.S. recognized Israel's claim to all of the city, forever. President Trump is now entering into Israel's history books. Previous U.S. administrations had promised to do this move, moving the embassy here to Jerusalem, but had deferred the decision, fearing it could cause an outbreak of violence in the volatile Middle East. And today, that's exactly what happened. Tear gas and bloodshed in the Gaza Strip, where some two million Palestinians are sealed off from the outside world. Protesters march toward Israel's closed and heavily defended border. NBC's Matt Bradley was there. Tens of thousands of Palestinian protesters have been trying since this morning to breach that border into Israel. The reaction from Israel with sniper fire and artillery has led to more deaths here. Cameras captured protesters falling after being shot. Many in Gaza feel they have nothing to lose. Better to die for a principle, their claim to Jerusalem. Well, some heart-stopping video of a runway collision between two big jets in Turkey. The video shows the wing of an Asiana Airbus 330 shearing off the tail of a smaller Turkish Airways jet. Luckily, no one was injured, but some passengers are quoted as saying they thought that a bomb had gone off. The Canadian-born actress who rose to fame opposite Christopher Reeve's Superman has died. Why are you here? There must be a reason for you to be here. Yes. Margot Kidder played Lois Lane in four films through the 1970s and 80s. Her private life made headlines as well. She briefly dated Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Kidder was also an advocate for mental health issues after speaking out about living with bipolar disorder, a condition that once left her homeless. In 2011, she was arrested outside the White House protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. Kidder's manager says she died peacefully in her sleep at the age of 69. In health matters, we focus on a disease that affects almost 100,000 Canadians, a number that's expected to rise by almost 40% in the next decade. Canada has the highest rate of multiple sclerosis in the world, and tonight we begin a four-part series 
on some of the biggest mysteries of MS. Aaron MacArthur reports. When I heard, like, yes, we found something on the MRI, we can see this really looks like what it is, I was like, oh, thank goodness, it's not my imagination. It took nine months for Melissa Hope to get her diagnosis. But she had her suspicions. Everything she was feeling lined up with what she was reading about multiple sclerosis. Lots of muscle weakness. For a while, my arm just felt like it weighed 20 pounds, just uh, all the time. MS is an autoimmune condition that attacks the central nervous system, leaving a lot of researchers baffled. What is MS? Short answer, scar tissue or inflammation caused by immune cells that strip away the protective coating of neurons, causing the nerves to short circuit. Some part of their nervous system is being damaged by their immune system, and those symptoms can last for days or weeks and often go away. It's very unpredictable. Worldwide, 2.3 million people are affected by MS, and Canada leads the way. We have 290 cases per 100,000 people. For every man diagnosed, three women get the same news. Where women in general are more affected than men. And I think that's going to be one of the clues as to the cause of autoimmunity. Diagnosis is happening much earlier in patients. And that means attacks can be managed. In some cases, the inflammation reduced. People are living longer, fuller lives. Previously, those treatments might have been 30% effective. Now we're up to 80 to 90% effective. That's huge. Melissa managing her disease with as much humor as she can. We do play a game in my household, my partner and I. It's, uh, is this a symptom, a side effect, or something else? Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Got it. I'm up your side. Someone leaked out an amazing marriage proposal video. It's going. You had to do it. It's going viral. (laughs) Do you see what I did there? I see. We'll we'll show you what he was talking about. (laughs) I might get in trouble for that. Well done. Going off script slightly. All right, Christy Gordon joins us now uh, with a look at our weather forecast. Now you've thrown me a little bit. We'll wait you can to roll see. with anything. Uh, it's beautiful out there, Christy, but we have some sure. uh, problems on the way in the interior. Yes, the preliminary numbers show about a handful of records broken across the south coast, not a single cloud in the sky. But temperatures are going to slowly drop in the coming days. The reason for that is the big bridge of high pressure is going to shift further inland. That will bring the potentially record-breaking temperatures into the interior tomorrow and over the next two days, hot and sunny. As we talked about, it's these two days we're concerned about still above-average conditions with that rainfall. So River Forecast Center using this map of the Mission Creep area just to give you an idea of the forecast. This is the area in uh, red here. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday are the days of concern for the river levels uh, to rise once again because of the heat and then the rainfall. And then after that, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, it looks like conditions dry out and warm up again, but we're still days out and there's some uncertainty here. So we are going to be tracking uh, that through the next couple of days as we head into the long weekend, because that will be, uh, of course, a big um, concern. Now, remaining snowpack, high elevations at about 70 to 90 percent, mid elevation snowpack, 50 to 60. Lower elevation seems to be gone. But to give you a perspective at these two elevations, here's how much water equivalent is still out there from 400 
100 millimeters of moisture content to in excess of 1,000 in some area. We still have a ton of moisture that is set to uh, come down with that heat and the rainfall. So this is your forecast for tomorrow. As I mentioned, interior regions from Prince George down through the southern interior, potentially record-breaking conditions. You can see Kamloops potentially uh, 33 degrees tomorrow. Uh, So in the low 30s, certainly south coast will be slightly cooler tomorrow and will continue to drop in the coming days, especially on Thursday and Friday. A little bit more cloud in the forecast, but no rain in the forecast for the south coast. Just some cloud cover and cooler conditions. And then it looks like we rebound over the weekend. A nice shot from Prince George. Thanks to Nicole Brown. Picture perfect blue sky flying a kite there. Thanks, Nicole. That's awesome. Lion dance. Kite. Great. All right. Thanks, Christy. A lot of marriage proposals go viral for various reasons, but you've probably never seen one like this. Just as Kevin pops the question to Alyssa, her three-year-old son Owen decides, well, it's time to go. As you can see, he just drops his pants. The proposal carries on with Kevin and Alyssa oblivious to the show-stealing scene right behind them until Kevin's daughter, who's the one shooting the video, notices what's going on. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you guys! <laughs> oh my god, he's peeing. Are you serious? <laughs> On the plus side, they now have a pretty good story to tell. Oh my goodness. That's the best. I love that. that um, you know what? That streaming video is what that is. Oh. Streaming video. Streaming video. Oh, we were no. down at the Lonsdale Key. There's a new water park area just out front of uh, the new restaurants down yeah. there. And Jordan Braden would not keep his clothes on yesterday, <laughs> running around in the water park. Why would you? It's so little, hot. Little Anyways, skinny dip. Why not? Yeah, it was so funny. funny. All right, Squire. I'm still on. I'm still on your two. The joke. The leak. <laughs> <laughs> leaking the viral the video, video. video. <laughs> streaming I just, I'm going to go the negative those. way here if that marriage doesn't last those two will both look back and say that was the omen right there yeah, <laughs> yeah but I'll, oh hi hi how you doing sure I don't know a little jet lag I'm over so here you guys are lag. figuring some stuff out I gotta tell you it's like two in the morning or something in my head you're faking it really well really? that you're alert yeah. and ready to go Sit you feel like nodding smile. off just go right ahead <laughs> okay uh, unlike L.A. and San Jose, Winnipeg has the speed to keep up with the Vegas Golden Knights. That's why they won game one. But Vegas is not easily discouraged. Winnipeg cannot take its foot off the gas at any time during this series because if they do, the Golden Knights will run over them. It's game two. Here come the Jets. Don't want to go back to Vegas tied 1-1. Mark Scheifele with a chance through Mark Andre's for his legs, but no. What happened there? Sticky ice. Remain scoreless. Then this. Thomas Tatar, one chance, two chances, three chances. It's in. One nothing for Vegas. Kyle Connor loses the puck in the neutral zone, but all the other Jets are going for a line change. Bad idea. Jonathan Marsh's show, two nothing. And they are late in the second period. Canucks prospect and Sweden's Elias Pettersson will not be around for the rest of the World Hockey Championships because he has a broken thumb and it will likely require surgery. This could take a full month to heal. Interesting note, the other day, the GM of the team that Pettersson plays for in Sweden says 
He thinks Pedersen should stick around the Swedish League for one more year before coming to the Canucks. I guess he would think that because he was so great for them. I'm not so sure the Canucks see it the same way. All right, Canada-Latvia at the World Hockey Championships. Canada struggled with the Latvians. It actually went to overtime, finally an OT. Great save here, but Connor McDavid, and yes, that's a good goal, even though the referee first waved it off and then said yes. Stick was not too high, and Canada wins it 2-1. So, next up for Canada in the preliminary round, which never seems to end, is Germany. Vancouver Giants will have to hire a new general manager because Glenn Hanlon has left to look for a coaching job. He was with the uh, Giants as their GM for the past two years. Top candidate right now is an assistant for Tri-City. It's uh, Barkley Parnetta, who used to work for the Giants when they started in the Western Hockey League. He'd be a good choice. He is a good judge of young talent. And as expected, Whitecaps captain Kendall Wasta will be on the Costa Rica side of the World Cup this year. That means he'll be available for Vancouver for only three more games, and he has to join Costa Rica when he comes back. Well, that depends on how far Costa Rica goes at the World Cup. They are in a tough group with Brazil, Switzerland, and Serbia, so it won't be easy for them to advance to the next round. Georgia Simmerling has been an Olympic Swiss Army knife for Canada, able to excel in both skiing and cycling. But she looks to be ready to get off the mountain and just concentrate on the biking portion of her career, which has been less painful than skiing. There has always been light at the end of the tunnel for the only Canadian athlete to go to three Olympics in three different sports. For Georgia Simmerling, her quest for a fourth Olympic Games just might be her greatest achievement to date. Simmerling was Canada's top-ranked ski cross athlete entering the most recent Olympics, but in the final race just prior to the Games, she broke not one, but both of her legs. I tell people if I had four legs, I would have rather broken four legs than did what I did to my knee as well. I tore... Um, four ligaments in my knee and both did both meniscus uh, damage there. So, um, yeah, the injury was obviously an extensive one and, and not, at the, not at the right time. Georgia. The list of injuries Georgia suffered in her career is almost as long as the runs she's raced down, be it as an alpine skier or ski cross racer. Prior to breaking her leg, she suffered serious MCL injuries to both knees. Prior to that, she rehabbed her way back from three broken vertebrae in her neck and back, which ended another promising season. Oh. You know, it, it tests you. It, it tests you. You know, the injuries ask, ask you questions. There's a lot of uh, personal time and then a lot of, uh, you know, internal conversation that you have. Um, do I want to do this again? Do I want to go through this? Um, and to me, the answer is always yes. And they push me and uh, I'm, I just feel like I'm not done. Not done means getting right back at it. Not just rehabbing, but competing again. Georgia won a bronze medal in the 2016 Summer Olympics riding for Team Canada in women's track pursuit. She's clipped in, hoping to be back in the saddle for another Olympic ride come 2020. You know, I still have a lot of passion and drive and, and focus and determination to uh, continue to represent my country. Um, I recently renounced my retirement, uh, announced my retirement from ski cross, and I feel like uh, it's not really a retirement. I'm not done from sports, and I have a lot more to give this country and, and um, you know, inspiring the next generation of, of both summer and winter athletes. Uh, that's, I, I feel like my... Um, yeah, my, my job's not done, and, and uh, I, I have more goals to accomplish. Canada's Denis Shapovalov has moved up 14 spots. He's now 29th in the world tennis rankings, coming off a very good run at the Madrid Open, where he beat Milos Ronic on clay. Uh, eventually made it to the semifinals before losing. Ronic, 22nd in the rankings. Roger Federer is number one again. Shapovalov has the talent to go even higher over the summer. A lot depends on what he does 
at the Grand Slams. There you go. Coming up on ET Canada, which of your favorite TV shows got canceled and which ones are coming back? And the secret to keeping massive secrets when you star in Star Wars, like Amelia Clark and Paul Bettany. That is coming up at 7 right after the news hour. But right now, back to you, Chris and Sophie. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Well, just five days before her wedding to Prince Harry, Meghan Markle is dealing with a very public family crisis. Kensington Palace is asking for understanding and respect after Markle's father announced he would not be attending the wedding to walk her down the aisle. TMZ is reporting that Thomas Markle is upset over reports that photos of him getting ready for the wedding were staged for photographers, also saying he suffered a heart attack less than a week ago. Well, most of us will be content with watching the wedding on TV. Enthusiastic fans getting up at 4 a.m. to see it live. But for the most dedicated fanatics, like the people Kylie Stanton spoke to, being there is the only acceptable option. Marching bands rehearse in the streets while police get into position. With the royal wedding only five days away, everyone here is getting ready to welcome the House of Windsor. We can't wait to get it all, um, all happening this weekend. And so it's fitting, at this house, on Windsor, more than 7,500 oh kilometres away. Have I got it on right, Viv? Two friends you want a little more jaunty, are making some preparations of their own. Everybody loves a wedding. The outfits are picked and plane tickets purchased. The only thing missing is an invite. Yeah, we both wrote to the royal press secretary and thought that he might just be interested, but we didn't hear back. I'm not surprised. They're very busy. <laughs> but Vivian Phillips and Jenny Hopkins aren't worried. This isn't their first brush with royalty. We can read this on the plane. When oh, Prince William and Kate Middleton said their I do's, it just happened to coincide with a trip the pair were already planning overseas, a chance they couldn't pass up. I suddenly thought... Well, if we back up a few days and change our, our tickets, we could attend the royal wedding. Yeah. And we did. We met all kinds of people. And it was just like a party. And so they made a pact. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> to do it all over again. Finally, seven years later, when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle announced their engagement. All the stars were aligned, everything was just perfect. They had their chance. We thought, well, shall we do this wedding? <laughs> now, with wedding bells set to ring, they're going to make it count. Ready to stand out in the crowd of 100,000, hoping to catch a glimpse of the royal couple in person. I think they will invite us in for tea. <laughs> but happy just to be a part of the celebration. Crash it or not, we're going to be there. <laughs> Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. We've just learned you'll be maybe sipping tea out of your... Oh, I did. Harry and Meghan Mark? Because I was in the UK, so I thought I would get a memento, and I've got my Harry and Meghan commemorative <laughs> mug. <laughs> really? That you will cherish forever. Oh, when, they, when he asked her to marry, do you think some kid was... No, probably. no, 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 not like the earlier okay. video we showed. The streaming video? Yeah, I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> right Thanks for watching. Have a good night. Good night, all.